looks like most are done here, so let's go ahead and start looking through this. Tried to put in some of my trademark tricky questions here. So. Number one, all people have the freedom to embrace or reject God. I had simply said, all people have freedom, true. Okay. But remember how we defined what freedom was? Freedom is not the, the ability to do anything at all. Okay. In fact, nobody has that kind of freedom. Even God doesn't have that freedom. He can't do anything at all. He can't lie. For he, can't, he can't deny his own nature. He cannot deny his own character. And so the question then is whether all people, by their nature, are able to embrace God. And the answer is no. Okay. Uh, so that's so the answer would the answer is false. Okay. Uh, all people choose according to the dominant impulse of their nature. So their chooser isn't broken. They're able to make choices. Nonetheless, they have a moral demerit such that the dominant impulse of their nature is always evil continually, and so the only choices that an unbeliever will make are going to be uh, in the wrong direction, okay? Either in act or at least in motivation, okay? We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about depravity, uh, but I think it's a good uh, introduction to that. Any questions on that point up till now? We'll explore that a little bit more when we talk about the doctrine of depravity, so that'll come back if you're still processing that. Number two, Adam and Eve sinned because they had a sin nature. False. False. Why not? Now we're afraid to answer. Now we're afraid to answer. Now you're afraid to answer. <laughs> and the answer behind you is correct. It was it uh, because they were created very good. So they were created perfect. So without a sin nature, uh, what did we suggest was Satan's vehicle of temptation then? They'd be like God. Okay. Questioning God and what God said. Okay, yeah. I'm sorry? Okay, yeah. So those are some of the reasons, but but what they what he's trying to penetrate then is their well their their chaste affections to excess. Remember that line? Maybe you don't remember the line, but he 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 goes after their affections, which are appropriate and good. It's good to be wise. It's good to seek that which is beautiful. It's good to seek that which will give them knowledge. Okay, so so your answers are all right. But what was he appealing to? The affections, the godly affections that God gave to them to, to choose that which is good for food, for sustenance, something that's good for knowledge, something that is pleasing and beautiful, okay, and so, by appealing to those chaste affections, they end up following those to the point of disobedience. Okay. Was there a question there? No, I, okay. I just, I remember that someone else had mentioned, you know, the idea that, that he 
appealed to them to consider those things above trusting God with them. Sure, sure. Yeah, so they, they pursued the affections that God gave them, even when it meant disobeying God. Number three, Adam and Eve died on the very day they ate the forbidden fruit. They died spiritually. They okay. died spiritually, not but not physically. Okay, so yeah, so you could you could make a case for a true or a false on this. Um, it is true that they died spiritually. In fact, the moment they did this, they were they were aware of their shame and they wanted to hide from God. They had an immediate hostility towards God that could not be. Suppressed. Okay, so spiritual death was instant. Physical death, we perhaps could say, began at that point. They began to die, and we were all in the process of dying. I need to bring up a bad topic here, but we're all in the process of dying, and so Adam and Eve at that point were as well. But we suggested that perhaps what is meant here, this is probably an idiom, on the day that you eat it, uh, is probably more as surely as you eat it so surely you shall die is probably a better way of understanding that that phrase okay Adam and Eve were poisoned by the forbidden fruit okay correct in fact I was you know, I had a good conversation here at the, at the uh, end of class last time actually spilled over into the next day with lunch with uh, uh Ken Brown and Bill Combs. We talked at, at some length about this this idea of the trees, um, because at, at, at first blush they seem like magic trees. Um, that there's something that you eat the one and it sort of like it poisons you, or actually does you know whether it's a physical poison or a moral poison or whatever, whatever it actually somehow damages you. But that's probably not the case. It's, it's what we have is an ordinary tree that is there to test them. Okay, and when the person, it was the act of the eating in disobedience to God that is that is the cause of their sinfulness, not the fruit itself, the chemical properties of the fruit. Um, and then we talked about the other tree, right? The tree of life, and, uh, and so the question is: Is that a magic tree? You know, it was, you know, if you eat that, does it sort of automatically, you know, give you heaven? Um, and probably that's not a magic tree either. But you know, in, in some ways, uh, we sort of settled on the idea. That it's, in some ways, it's kind of like communion, right? Okay, well, let me let me follow me here. Okay, if someone is in known sin, and particularly the kind of sin that damages the unity of the body what is the church supposed to do discipline okay discipline up to the point of what excommunication excommunication and particularly what that the form of that is uh, don't share a meal with them okay because and and and, and it seems like the, the idea is communion don't don't have communion with you why because what does Paul say about people who don't regard the Lord's body when they eat communion. Sick or dying. Yes. So they're they're put in danger. And so, you know, the, how, the, how Baptist Polly talked is that you, you guard the table. Okay? And I think that's probably what we have here with the tree of life. They're guarding the way to the tree of life. 
so that no one who is not who is not worthy to do so can eat from that tree. Not because the tree will magically make them immortal, uh, but rather because that tree is reserved symbolically for people who have spiritual life, and those who are spiritually dead are not granted access to it. Okay. Well, have it in heaven. In fact, if, you know, you read about it in Revelation 21, that fantastic description here of it at the, at the, at the major gate to the city of Jerusalem, this and there's a stream here, and this tree actually straddles the stream. It's, a, it's an enormous tree uh, that straddles the uh, stream that goes that comes out of the city here, and anyone's invited to eat freely. So the tree comes back, but even there, it's not a magic tree at that point. It's just a it's a, it's symbolic of those those who are welcomed to eat it are those who have spiritual life. Okay. Number five, when Adam sinned, he lost his right to rule over the created world. False. False. Now, in some sense, he lost his ability. It became difficult for him, uh, but he was not he was not denied his continuing responsibility to rule through the dominion mandate. Okay, and finally, I'm, I'm, I'm really pushing here on this one. <laughs> the idea that women can do anything that men can do is an idea sourced in the fall. Yeah, probably it's true. Yeah, so, I mean, that, and that's, that's the, that was the language used. Her desire will be to her husband. She wants everything he is and has and is denied. Okay. That, that feels like, though... It's, this is it's just the syntax and the question. Like, like, like women can do anything that men can do, regardless of the fall. Like I can shoot a hoop, they can shoot a hoop. You know what some I mean? Things. Some things. They but can do something. Anything. Anything's a broad. Anything's a big word. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of that. But but oftentimes that's the way it's put. Put. And, and there, yeah, there are certain things that women can't do that men. There are certain things that men can that men can't do that women can. That's true. Yeah. And it seems like we're trying to you know cross both both ways at times. Uh, but uh, yeah, there there are there are gender distinctions. Okay, I missed that. I don't want to have. Men don't want to have babies. Yeah. And we can't watch this, we know that. <laughs> I've tried, and it didn't work, so. <laughs> I don't believe it. So that, that wraps up our doctrine of anthropology, doctrine of mankind, doctrine of men and women. So we're moving now into the doctrine of sin, and the uh, transition is rather smooth uh, because 
mankind are are marked uh, by this quality of sin, and so it's very it's uh, it's very easy to make this transition. Um, I start off by a little bit of an introduction. It's 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 odd that the doctrine of sin has proven throughout history to be one of the most important of all the points of demarcation between theological systems. Uh, from the days of Augustine and Pelagius in the 4th century to the debates between Calvin and Arminius to the fundamentalist modernist controversy at the end of the last century, sin has p- played a remarkable role. Okay, you know How sinful are we? What, what does sin do to us? Does it, does it damage us? Does it cripple us? Are we dead? Are there, what, what, at what level should we talk about our relationship to sin? Well, that's been a debate all the way along. Of course, the chief difference between the theological liberal and the theological fundamentalist, and, and I think in, in some senses this carries over into the political debate. I don't want to go into wade in too deeply here. But the idea of a theological liberal is that man is generally good, and so the, the, the role of the church is to nurture that. Okay? Whereas the conservative, the evangelical, uh, has, has generally said, no, men is predominantly evil, and rather than trying to nurture something that's just not there, the need is the new birth. And so, I mean, that's the theme of the evangelical movement. You must be born again. And that kind of language was was not present among the well, among the theological liberals. So the, the, this 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 issue of the extent of depravity has been a real watershed issue uh, throughout the history of the church, and so it does become something rather important to us. I know we don't really like to talk about sin; it's not you know the first topic that you want to you know talk about in the morning when you when you wake up. And but uh, the fact is, it stares us in the face uh, when we do and look into the mirror, right? Okay, so we we want to make sure that we have a good sense of what sin is, what it has done, what it is doing, and how it can be overcome. Okay, I'm not going to spend much time on this bibliography except to point out a few that are helpful. Of course, your textbook, Hokuma, created in God's image, I think is probably the best book that covers both the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin, so that's why it is our textbook. There's probably uh, a better book on just the doctrine of sin. That would be John Murray's Imputation of Adam's Sin. Well worth picking up if you ever have the time. It's a small volume. shouldn't cost you but a few bucks. Okay? Uh, so we'll, we'll make some appeals to that. Uh, if you want the, the long version, the uh, probably the most comprehensive and incisive uh, book on the doctrine of sin, John Owen's Works, Volume 6, is particularly helpful. It's actually several books in a single volume here, uh, especially his mortification of sin is extremely helpful for us. Okay? Um, Ian Campbell is also a helpful short introduction to the doctrine of sin. I, I, I hesitate to put that on there, and you're going to have a great deal of difficulty finding it. If you find it, snap it up, because it's well worth a read. The reason it's hard to find 
and, and it's just a terrible irony and, and shocking story here. Uh, Ian Campbell was pastor uh, on a, a small island off the coast of Scotland. It's one of those very small islands that are, you know, they're, they're, they're deeply reformed. Uh, everybody on the whole island knows each other as one church. He was the pastor of the church. It was a flourishing church. He writes this book here on the doctrine of sin. Really an outstanding treatment, one of the best short treatments that's there. And then sadly, he's discovered to have had affairs with about seven women in the church. It's exposed, and he commits suicide. And it's, and it's just a just a terrible story to, to see. But I, I keep it in there, just one, because it still is one of the best books on sin that's there. And secondly, it's just a reminder, I think, to me, of what sin can do. And so I, I, I keep that on the list there. Uh, some people just, I mean, the, the, the publisher immediately withdrew all the books uh, because of that. Um, but, of course, some had already been sold, and so they're out there. Uh, you can find a used copy here and there. But uh, sad story that goes with that. Um, uh, John Feinberg's Many Faces of Evil is probably the most comprehensive treatment of the problem of evil, you know, it, it, the, the two questions here that are being asked, how did God allow sin into his universe that was perfectly good? And then perhaps the larger question is, why did God allow into the universe sin if he could have prevented it? And we know that he could have. God's om, omni, you know, he, he's, he's all-powerful here. He's omnipotent. So he could have prevented sin. And so the question is, why didn't he? Uh, why is it that sin then is part of his eternal decree from eternity past? It's a very thorny question. Um, Feinberg goes through a number of models, mo- a number of options here. I actually don't really care for the one he chooses. Uh, nonetheless, it's probably the best summary of options there uh, that is that is available uh, to us. Okay, uh, Chris Lundgaard, some of you perhaps have have that recommended to you, The Enemy Within. Um, it's, it's, it's on overcoming indwelling sin, particularly addictions, and uh, I think he does a very good job. It's a, it's a counseling book, but it's a counseling book with a, with a heavy dose of very good theology uh, under undergirding it, so it's, it's, a, it's well worth reading, uh, particularly if you know someone or are someone uh, that struggles with some sort of besetting sin, addictive type of a sin, and you want victory over it, I think this this is a book that you might recommend or read uh, to help you uh, tour to that end. Okay? So that's that's all I want to say about the bibliography, unless there's questions that you wanted to ask about it. Okay, then. Definition of sin. Okay, so again, as I typically do in my theology discussions, you start with the, this is a football kind of uh, discussion here. What is sin? Well, there's several terms uh, that are found in the Old and New Testaments here. Strong gives a definition of sin as lack of conformity to the moral law of God, either in act, disposition, or state. I think it's a pretty good definition. It's a little bit passive, 
It's a, it's a lack of conformity rather than a a rebellion against. Uh, so that's that's one element that I think could perhaps be improved in the definition. But in general, it's a pretty good definition. You see it all over the place. Okay. And he does draw attention to something that a lot of people neglect, that there are sins of omission. Um, failure to do what one ought to do is every bit as much a sin as doing what you ought not. Okay? So, uh, so other terms of sin uh, fill this out from, uh, from the scriptures here. Firstly here, uh, we find uh, that... Uh, most common term for sin in both testaments, connotes the idea of missing the mark. This is the most dominant meaning. This is the word that's normally translated sin in both Hebrew, from both Hebrew and Greek. So failing to meet a righteous standard. And Ecclesiastes 7.20 gives us what that standard is. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Okay? And that's the expectation that God has. You know, you know, somebody comes to you, you talk to somebody, you know, I'm not, I'm not such a bad guy. Okay? I've, I've never killed anybody. I, I don't habitually lie. You know, I don't have any addictions. I don't. I don't engage in sexual sin. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. But then you come back with a question. Okay, are you a righteous man who does what is right and has never sinned? Well, no, <coughs> nobody fits that category, and that's the expectation. Everybody misses the mark here. In fact, it's interesting that uh, uh, in Judges 20, the uh, sons of Benjamin, who were uh, apparently excellent s- sling throwers, you know, uh, the, and uh, each one could sling a stone and not sin, is actually, I mean, the same word is used here. But remember the idea, he missing the mark. Each one could throw a, he'd sling a stone and never miss a mark. Okay, so that's... Uh, you can see that underlying idea of missing the mark in that usage there in the Old Testament. Romans 3, of course, we're all familiar with this. All have sinned, and it defines it here, coming short of the glory of God. Okay, Coming short of every expectation that God has. There are also active terms for sins in the, in the, in the uh, Old Testament. Transgressions, that is crossing a boundary. Joshua, you will transgress the covenant of the Lord your God and go to serve other gods. Okay, so this is an active turn here for sin, whereby you exceed or go outside of what God says uh, you are to do. Is crossing a boundary to embrace something that you oughtn't. Okay, and again, this term is sometimes used in a in a in a sense that doesn't sound like sin, but it gives you a sense of what is meant here. God sent the sea for, he God set for the sea a boundary so that the water would not transgress. Okay? The water only goes so far up on the coastline there. Uh, and uh, God will not allow it any further than that. So this idea of transgressing is, is used in, in a more mundane context here. There's a term for this in the New Testament as well, as you see in Matthew 15. Iniquity or unrighteousness is another term here, which is a corruption or a perversion 
of what is right, making the crook, making what is straight to be crooked. Okay, Job says, I sinned, I perverted what was right. Okay, and so, so oftentimes you have this idea, I worked iniquity. That's often the, 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 the verb that's associated here. The, the idea is a, a manipulation of the command to need not exactly, I, I perverted what the expectation was. I know what the expectation, but, it, you know, that, which is why we have Matthew 5, right? Okay. The Bible says I can't kill somebody. And so somebody, and a lot of people come along and say, okay, but I can hate someone so long as I don't kill anybody. And what does God say? Well, that's a perversion of the expectation that you know I meant. Don't don't tell me that you didn't know this. You knew that that along with the command not to kill is not to do the things that lead up to killing. Okay, uh, but it's a perversion to suggest that we can we can you know. And he does the same thing with adultery, right? Okay, it's a perversion. Well, I didn't I didn't actually commit adultery in the flesh, and yet we still. I mean, we we would even call someone who commits adultery into, in his heart, a perversion. One is a pervert who does that. I mean, we actually use that, we use that kind of language in this case. Okay? James 3, this tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. It defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life. So this idea of iniquity or unrighteousness. There's also a whole raft of terms that carry this idea of rebellion whether that be revolting against God, rebelling against God, being stubborn toward God, being foolish, being lawless. I think they all sort of fit under this category of rebellion. This is the resistance of moral restraint and, and throwing off the bands of moral restraint. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay, Or perhaps better we can say, it's not that he's denying the existence of God per se as... There's no God for me. I'm not going to acknowledge any God. Uh, and that's that's really what the fool says. My people have rebelled against me. Israel has become stubborn. All sin is lawlessness. Throwing off restraint, here's the idea. Disobedience, which is simply doing the opposite of what God says. Refusal to do what God has commanded. Through the one man's disobedience. This is Adam's sin is described here as a, an act of disobedience. The many were made sinners. So he refuses to do what God commands. Don't eat of the tree. He ate of it. There are also stative terms for the doctrine of sin. That is what one is. Not just what one does, but what one is. Wickedness or evil. Vile inner character here. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. So sin had pervaded the individual so that he's just corrupt. He's got vile character. He's just a terrible person. Malice and wickedness are terms that are used in 1 Corinthians 5. It just it, it speaks to the character of the person. The word ungodliness here is inward pollution. And and often it sort of carries often the sense of 
yuck sins here, messy sins of the base sort that sort of stir thoughts of disgust. Okay, and and it often it often is it, it is it's almost cast as a as a disease or a virus that's in the air right now, right? Viruses. Ungodliness has spread through the land. Okay, and then there's a there's a specific instance of this mentioned in the New Testament. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Okay, so it gives sort of a a source of 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 this spreading sin and gossip. Okay, and that's a sort of a I think it's a pretty good illustration of the kinds of sins that spread. And so that's the idea here of ungodliness. There's also passive terms for sin. So not only what one does and what one is, but also what one doesn't do and ought to. So ignorance here. And I, I put down here a culpable ignorance. You know, it's the kind of language you use when the you know the police officer pulls you over and I didn't know it was supposed to be forty five here. Well, what does he say? Okay. You probably did, but even if you didn't, you should have. Okay, so you've got culpable ignorance here. And so that's the idea here of ignorance. Atonement was made not only uh, for sins that were overt and intentional, but also sins that were unintentional and sins done in ignorance. Okay? And now, the, the, the penalty for sins done in ignorance... And for sins that uh, um, are unintentional is less, but it doesn't it, the, the the punishment doesn't go away entirely. Okay, and so we are going to see that there sort of are grades gradations of sin, and sins that are done in ignorance and unintentionally uh, have a lesser punishment, but it doesn't mean they're they're not sins. They're still sins. Uh, Ephesians 4.18 describes the depraved person as darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. That is, they don't know God. They should know God. There's no excuse for them not knowing God, as Romans tells us, right? Romans 1 and 2. And yet they are ignorant, and they are culpably ignorant for that. Also, the idea of failure or falling or debts. That shows up right in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Okay? And I sometimes we don't like that word because it, it almost carries the idea, okay, you know, you know, make my mortgage go away or something. That, that's, that's not what is meant here by forgive us our debts, but rather forgive us the shortcomings that we have. Failure to meet God's expectation. Uh, you know, forgive my shortcomings. You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That is the uh, failure, the failures to do what God expects. Forgive us our debt. So there's a number of, uh, of of terms here, and a lot of terms for sin in both testaments, and it gives us sort of a lot of nuances as to what sin entails. I think uh, oftentimes we tend to fixate on a certain aspect of sin, but there's sort of a robust filling out of this this idea that I think we do well to to recognize. Okay, and, and it can help us too, right? 
You're trying. I mean, one of the first things you need to do if you're giving the gospel to someone is to get them lost, right? Before you can get them saved, you have to get them lost, right? And oftentimes people have a very simplistic view of what sin is, and based on perhaps one of these definitions, they can say, yeah, I'm pretty good on, th- on that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but sin is a lot more robust than you realize, and so that you can bring in some of the other manifestations of sin to the point where they can, where they have to say, oh yeah, well, if that's the definition of sin, you know, there's no denying it. I'm a sinner. Okay? So I think these things can be helpful for you. Um, you know, rather than go to the to the end of the Ten Commandments where it says, thou shalt not kill. And they say, oh, I've never done that. Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Have you done that? I mean, that's, there's a sin of omission. And there's not a person in this world who can say, oh yeah, I've done that every single morning. You know, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and mind. No, no. Nobody does that. And so uh, this, this more robust understanding of what uh, sin is, I think, can be useful uh, in context like that. Okay, so these, this is our definition of sin. What is original sin? Sometimes you hear that term used. Um, and, and often used incorrectly. Original sin is not Adam and Eve's sin. Okay, it, it is. It is. It relies on Adam and Eve's sin for its existence. But original sin is more than just that event that took place, you know, ten thousand years ago. Right? Okay. It is that sinful state and condition within which men are born. Okay, so you are born with original sin. Okay, you are born in possession of this thing called original sin. So it's, I mean, it's tied to what Adam and Eve did, but you are born with this original sin. You you originate with this problem. So there's the idea of original. Okay, it's got two parts. First is imputed guilt. Okay, all men bear the guilt of Adam's representative sin. Yeah, man has sin, or man has guilt. Okay, now for now we're we're not going to say anything more than that, except to lay it out there. We're going to have to defend this because it's perhaps one of the more difficult aspects of sin for us to get our minds around and to accept that we are in some sense guilty for someone else's sin. Okay, we have imputed God. guilt was imputed to us, and of course the response is okay. Yeah, that doesn't seem fair to us, but you, you want you kind of want this. Otherwise, the imputed righteousness of Christ isn't fair either. Okay, so uh, in <laughs> you, you take one with the other, uh, the the imputed guilt and the imputed righteousness. It's solution. Uh, are both uh, for this, but we'll, we'll have to defend that in a little bit. But for now, we'll just put it out there on the table. There's also inherited corruption. Okay, so all persons are born with a sin nature that is not able not to sin. So man is a sinner, and he commits sin. And you can see this little table I have somehow spilled on the second page. I don't usually like to do that with my tables, but something happened there. But you say we see we basically have three problems. We have sinfulness. The term here is imputed sin. 
How do we get it? Well, it's credited to our account from our representative head. What's the remedy? Well, the remedy is that this original, this imputed sin is then imputed to Christ, transferred to his account, and his righteousness transferred to ours. Okay, so that's the remedy for imputed sin. And the reason that Christ was immune to it is because he is the second Adam. He's been appointed by God to be the second Adam. Second problem is that we are sinners. That is what we are statively. We are sinners. Why is it? Because we are corrupted. We are born corrupt. We come out of the womb speaking lies. Okay, In sin my mother conceived me. Okay, So every child is born with sin. Okay, he is a sinner. Okay, yeah, sorry, you know, if you've got got a little baby, even if it's or a grandson, even, yep. A few years ago, a table talk. Are you familiar with the table talk? It's a it's a little devotional magazine that Parson Sproul started years ago. But there is this this picture on the front, and there's the cutest little baby in the world, and and stamped on it was a you know depraved. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's that's the way it is. And we are we are sinners. So we not only have guilt, we also have corruption. We are corrupt. And you know, it won't be long before you recognize that this corruption emerging. Perhaps you've already noticed. I see a little bit right? of that in my three year old. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder to see when you're a grandkid, my grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're a dad though, I mean it shows up I got it right third right. day or so, but <laughs> Grandpa doesn't see it right away, though. So how is it transmitted? Well, it's inherited from Adam in the sin nature that is possessed by all persons. We talked about this, how, how our souls transmitted. Okay, we, we get our souls uh, by, the, by the act of conception. Mom and dad come together and produce a new soul which has a nature and the only nature that it can possess by virtue of its parents is a corrupt one. Okay? So what's the remedy? A new nature. If we have a corrupt nature, what is the remedy? To be given a new nature, which is definitive sanctification. So this is the uh, decisive breach with sin and the death of the old man. Okay? Which hopefully all of you have experienced and are observing over the course of time and much time it seems but uh, hopefully you're, st- you're observing that how did how was Christ immune to this while well, the virgin birth uh, he was not he did not receive any inherited corruption because his personhood as we just we, we discussed earlier his personhood was imported from heaven he is the second person of the Godhead. He was not the product of mom and dad producing a new person. His personhood was imported to an impersonal humanity that was wrought in the womb of Mary, which is why the virgin birth becomes so important to us. Our third problem, then, is that we commit sin. So we have sinfulness, we are sinners, so we, we, uh, so we, uh, and, and then we commit sins as well. Okay, so unrighteousness, transgression, lawlessness, and this is the inevitable recurring product of the sin nature over and over iteratively. We sin. 
And uh, the solution to this as well is regeneration, the impartation of a new nature, which is renewed and is being renewed in righteousness such that uh, the, unbelie- the, the believer is no longer uh, described in the scripture in terms that talk of depravity. doesn't mean we're not sinful. But we're not totally depraved in the sense that we are incapable of pleasing God. Believers, by virtue of the new nature, uh, this uh, the, the new life that God has given to us, we are capable of pleasing God and we are commanded uh, to do the things that are pleasing to him. Um, and the reason, of course, that Christ didn't have this uh, problem is because he had no sin nature. So he was at all points like as we are except with respect to the fact of a sin nature. Okay. Questions here on definition, nature of sin up to this point? Okay, well let's talk about the root of sin. What it what is you know, if, if we're if we're to sort of dig down and get to the kernel, uh, what is it? Uh, that sin is at its as, as its essence. Well, there's four options if you read in the literature. There's four options that are given early in the in the uh, history of the church. The idea of sensuousness uh, was proposed as the root of sin or concupiscence, as it's sometimes called. In this understanding, sin is the result of the soul's connection with a body. This was very popular among the Platonic, uh, the Platonic those who are influenced by Platonic philosophy here. The idea that that which is material is bad, and that which is immaterial or spiritual is good, and so the goal is to you know rid yourself of the prison house of the body because it's bad. And the, the, it did perhaps doesn't help that the word that the scriptures use uh, for the, the remnants of sin is flesh, okay? Um, and, and so some actually thought that that was, we should understand that literally, okay? The flesh is, is yeah, this. That's, that's sinful. Uh, being, being material is bad. Of course, we know that's not true, right? Because Jesus is material, Jesus isn't bad, so being material is not intrinsically bad. But again, this was sort of a in the air uh, in the uh, in the days of the early church. So this view grows out of the Platonic view of matter as inherently evil. Most people don't recognize this today, uh, but sometimes its vestiges linger in Western culture. In such a model, the idea of sexuality, for instance, is viewed not only as a private thing, but a sinful thing. Perhaps you've met someone who is of that mindset, that, that, the, that, the, that the sexuality is actually bad. You know, Augustine believed this, for instance. Uh, he understood that, the, that sexuality was, was a necessary evil. Okay. One has one has to reproduce, but one shouldn't enjoy it. I mean, he was he was very very much a uh, that was that was the way he thought. Okay, because flesh is evil, flesh is sinful, 
and material sins are sometimes viewed before this reason, even by those who don't necessarily believe this, I think sometimes we we look at sins of the body as more sinful or more evil or more wicked than sins of the mind. And that's probably a mistake to think in those terms because it's out of your heart that your body acts. Okay, So it seems like we've got to go deeper than the flesh to find the root of sin. And is there a comment? I was going to say that even sexual sin is born in the mind. Correct, it is. Mm-hmm. So sensuousness doesn't seem to be the uh, correct answer to this, although it was uh, the early view, the, the view of the early church. A second view, also very ancient, is that sin is privation. Privation. In an attempt to extricate God from causality with respect to sin. So, to make it so that God is not involved in the beginning of sin in the universe. Augustine thought that sin, taught that sin was privation, something that was lost. As such, sin needs no active cause per se. Sin is simply the absence of obedience, the absence of thankfulness, but above all, the absence of love. Okay, and uh, and then also in Anselm, one of the early, uh, some of the one of the early major uh, Roman Catholic thinkers, uh, it is the absence of justice. Some of the earliest reformers followed this view as well um, and argued for sacraments to restore what was lost. Okay, so that's that's the goal of the sacraments, right? Okay, you've lost something and the sacraments give it back to you. Okay, that's that's the view of Romanism. And some of the earliest reformers didn't completely break away from that. Okay. Uh, Rome, uh, you know, the Reformation takes takes centuries to take place. In fact, there are, there, are, there there's reason to think that the Reformation is not completely over. There are still some topics that the that the Reformation hasn't yet addressed. Uh, but uh, but but early on, some of the reformers continued to argue for sacraments. But most of the Reformed tradition abandoned this understanding and followed John Calvin's emphasis on pravity. So for him, uh, the, the, basic, uh, the, the basic root of sin is not privation, something I don't have, but actually a corruption of that which I do. So this was, this was a new understanding. However, uh, Standing against him is Arminius. Okay, so you're familiar with the idea of Arminianism. That uh, will, this term is going to come up several times here. Of course, uh, they live roughly the same time. Calvin and Arminius live roughly the same time, not exactly the same time, but uh, they spar with each other. Okay, and Arminius revived the Romanist tradition following a, a Roman Catholic theologian, Bellarmine in arguing for deprivation as man's chief problem. We don't have something. We're lacking something. Man suffered loss at the fall, but not corruption. This is the Arminian understanding of sin. And for that reason, he retains 
even the power of contrary choice. So for for uh, for Arminius, man is not completely corrupted. He lost some things that need to be restored, but he is not corrupted. So there is no corruption of sin with which one is born. One is simply born lacking certain things, and if we have those things that we lack, uh, then we can be restored. Okay, this is a view held by the Methodists, the Wesleyans, and several other free church groups. Okay, this understanding flies in the face of many descriptions here above of sins as active. Okay, so it's not just something we don't have, but it's actually something we have done wickedly. Okay, we've corrupted ourselves. A third view, and this is the view of theological liberalism, is the idea that sin is a matter of limitation and is actually good in the making. Sin is effectively the fruit of ignorance and want. Remember that? I don't know if those two those words sound familiar. Where do they come from? No. Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, very good. So Charles Dickens uh, lives in the heyday of theological liberalism, and what what is you know we're trying to we're trying to convince Scrooge that he's a dead guy and he needs to reform himself, and he needs to do something to help society reform itself. And what does he need to address? And and the the grow ghost of Christmas present, right? Ghost of Christmas opens his robe and who are those two little waifs? And what are their names? Ignorance and want. And the idea is if you can address the problems of ignorance and want in the world, then the world will be a good place. Okay, so so that's 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 liberalism sort of in a in a nutshell. And maybe you can even see a picture of it in your mind because of some of the uh, reading and movies you've watched over the years. So, sin can be overcome through education, philanthropy, social progress, and this is the basic view of ancient Pelagianism, but more recently, Protestant liberalism or modernism. If it's not those three, uh, then what is it? Well, we've sort of hinted at it already, is the idea sin is at its root replacing God with self. Okay? So the essence of sin is the antithesis of the summary of the divine law, the failure to love God supremely and to love something else more, almost always me. Okay, I love myself more. And again, that's the very first sin, right? I want to be like God. I want to be better than God. I want to be the arbiter of what is right and wrong and not him. Okay, So positing oneself as as an alternative to God, better than God, more important than God, is following my own way. I want to be the captain of my own fate uh, and the captain of my own soul. Okay, So it's not just a lack of love, though, but it's the, ob- the shifting of the object of love to oneself. So it's a failure to love God with the heart, soul, and mind, and the act of loving oneself more, acting strictly in one's own self-interest, eschewing all other claimants to authority. No one's going to tell me what to do. All sins can be traced back to this root problem. Okay? 
so we can establish here that love for God is the essence of all virtue. This is the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then we find that the essence of all vice is loving oneself, even though they knew God. They did not love him. Okay, They did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks. Thanks for a good Thanksgiving sermon, right? First, the, the, what, what is necessary to the, it, what is the necessary first step towards sin? Failure to thank God. Okay? Failure to love Him. Failure to honor Him. Failure to thank Him. And that then becomes the root for all the wicked things one does, right? Instead, they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be be wise, they became fools, and they replaced God, right? They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image that looked like them, surprisingly. Or perhaps like birds or four-footed animals or even crawling creatures. And for that reason, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to greater impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served, if I can put it here, the creature themselves. They are creatures rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. So that really ends up being then the, uh, the essence of sin. That's the root of sin, replacing God with self. And that's the essence of idolatry. Okay, uh, Serving something more than God or other than God, replacing God as the central object of my attentions, my obediences, etc. Okay, so that's that's really the, the, the essence of what sin is. Thought, thoughts, questions up till this point? Okay then, how then is sin expressed? Well, it's expressed in many ways, and perhaps in surprising ways sometimes. It's expressed in man's being. It's more than what people do. It's a state of being. God requires us to be holy not only in action, but also in disposition. Sin is depicted as existing in the soul prior to our consciousness of it, and is awakened by the moral law of God. So we're born with sin. Okay, It's part of our very essence, our very nature. And everyone who commits sin does so because he already is a slave of sin. So the acts of sin follow or flow out of slavery to sin. And then Paul gives us perhaps a a, a longer explanation of this. I would not have come to know what sin was, except through the law, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of any of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law. You know, I was once blissfully ignorant of the fact that God had told, told me what to do. But then the commandment came. And sin became alive. I realized what I was. And I died. And this commandment, which was supposed to result in life, you know, that's, that's the... The, 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 the essence of the command. Do these things and live. These uh, This commandment then, which was to result in life, 
prove to result in death for me and sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Okay. So it's part of what I am in my own very being. In fact, it's even predicated of our pre-conscious state. Okay. Psalm 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. And again, this is not as Augustine said, okay, the, the act of conception was a sinful one. No, it's from the point of conception forward. That is my nature, even before I knew it. Jeremiah 13, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Of course, the answer is no. A black person cannot become a white person, or vice versa. And a leopard can't decide, I'm not going to have spots today. I prefer stripes, you know. And so then then comes the hammer, right? Then neither can you, who are by nature good. As much as a black man is black, and as much as a leopard has spots, you are accustomed to doing evil and so therefore cannot do good. So it's even be, it's it's part of your your it's an indelible part of your very nature. I say here men are first liars and then they lie. They're first thieves and then they steal. They're per, first perverts and then they engage in perversion and they are first effeminate and then they engage in homosexuality according to 1 Corinthians 6. It's part of their sin nature. Now, that doesn't exonerate them, however. And this is, I think, an important thing, and it's, 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 a, it's a topic that sort of comes up quite a bit uh, in, a, in, our, in our modern society. Particularly, it seems to show up with the sin of homosexuality, but don't, don't get hung up on that as though this is the only example here. Uh, there are a great number of other sins that could be substituted here, but this this one has sort of brought the uh, the the, uh, the debate to the fore, if I can put it there. And and the question is this: Is it possible for people to be born with a propensity to specific sins? Okay, and can can, can someone be born gay? I and mean, it's usually the question that's asked. Or you know, but we shouldn't stop there. But can someone be born with a propensity to alcoholism? Yeah, that's another one that sort of shows up. Can, can, can you be born with a propensity towards specific sins? I think only in the fact that we are born with a propensity to sin, period. Okay. We all are. Yeah, but I think we can actually probably say even a little bit more. Now, I'm going to qualify this, but let, let follow this and see if, see if it makes sense. Okay. Obviously, people are born with the propensity to sin generally, right? I think we all can agree with that. When we are born, we are born with a tendency to sin. Romans 5 tells us that very cleanly. Now, the question then, is it possible then for a person to be born with a tendency towards specific sins? Say, alcoholism, homosexuality, gluttony, worry... My my, it's it's my my dad. My dad always he he's he's a he's a guy who who has a tendency to worry, and and uh, a lot of snookers do. And uh, he, he 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 will sometimes say, you know, I've got the worry gene. Okay, you know, 
the Snowbergers that it, we're carriers. You know, we we have the we have the the worry gene, and I I used to sort of laugh it off as oh that's not very theologically accurate, but actually we keep reading, and, and perhaps there may be something to this. Now it's difficult to prove whether someone has a genetic inclination towards specific sins, but there's no theological reason why it couldn't be the case. We do know from Scripture that people are born with a tendency to lie, right? We know that people come from the womb speaking lies. So there's a specific sin that our people are born with a tendency to commit. We also know that from science, that babies can be born sharing a mother's addictions. Sad, sad story, of course. But we know that that uh, children can be born with addictions. That is a tendency towards that which is sinful. For children, it's no, no fault of their own, but they're born that way. We also seem to see by observation that certain sins are clustered in families. Okay. Now, maybe this has to do more with nurture than it does with nature, but the fact is, you know, you know, families that are gluttonous tend to have children who are gluttonous. And, and maybe it's a genetic tendency. Maybe a matter of nurture, maybe a matter of nature. What we can't concede, okay, and, and I, and, I think some 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 folks will look at that paragraph and say, "Oh boy, you've opened up Pandora's box. You you've made it possible that people have a, a have a tendency towards specific sins, and so it's okay then that they commit them." No, no, you can't go there, right? What we cannot concede, however, is that sin habits received by inheritance are for that reason more tolerable. There might be greater room for sympathy in such cases but never tolerance. And we know this, right? If a, if a baby is born an alcoholic, what do the doctors immediately do? They try to wean them off of this addiction because they recognize this is bad. Okay? And so even though they are born a certain way, the doctor says they can't stay that way. And at least in our culture... At least we agree on them. Most most even unbelievers would agree on that. They, you, you, you know, some 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 child is born with alcoholism or a drug addiction. We need, we need to help them. Okay, so we have sympathy towards the baby, but we don't have we don't tolerate it in them. We try and wean them off it. We try and get them away from this uh, this uh, this sin with which they are born through no fault of their own, but they're born. Okay. Nor, in fact, should we counsel people born with sinful tendencies or orientations. There's a touchstone word there. To accept their condition and resolve near, merely not to act on those tendencies. That you say, okay, well, I was born a homosexual, and therefore it's okay to be a homosexual so long as I don't act on those tendencies. But scripture is very emphatic that both the act of sin and the disposition that prompts the act of sin is alike, are alike to be objects of mortification. Matthew 5, again, is our guide. We know that it is wrong not only to commit murder, but also to be hateful. It is not wrong only to commit adultery, but to 
be lustful. It is not wrong only to commit theft, but also to be envious. And, by extrapolation, it is wrong not only to commit homosexual acts, but also to be gay. It matters not whether a person is born oriented to specific sins. Now, if someone is born you know, genetically inclined towards specific sins, perhaps they can, they can be objects of our sympathy. And I think sometimes we're very hesitant to grant sympathy in those cases, right? We should make them the objects of our sympathy, but that sympathy can't translate into toleration any more than the baby who is born addicted to crack cocaine should be allowed to remain in that state. Okay? Now, it's surely true that Christians may continue to struggle long with dispositional sins. We must, however, be relentless affirming in affirming that sinful dispositions may and must be overcome because we are men made new. With the power resident within us not only to become holy in action, but become to become new in essence. We are by definition no longer what we once were, but rather we are Christians. In fact, let me, let me take you to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. I think we can sort of see this. So 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says this, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you once were. You were regenerated, right? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We are no longer what we once were. And based on the power resident within us, because we are men made new, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is possible not only to overcome sinful deeds, but also sinful dispositions, and that is our responsibility as believers. Okay? So these sins may and, and must not define believers. N- note the word I used here. These, these cannot be defining terms for us. Okay? A believer may struggle with the urge to steal, but you would never self-identify as a Christian thief. Okay? That's, that's, that's an oxymoronic combination, right? A Christian thief. A believer may struggle with illicit sexual thoughts, but he may never self-identify... Well, I'm just a Christian pervert. It's the way I was born. I'm just a Christian pervert. A believer may struggle with homosexual thoughts, but he may not, for that reason, ever self-identify as a gay Christian. Now, somehow that, those two words in our society seem to have become less oxymoronic than those other two. I'm not sure why. They shouldn't be. That's what Mayor Pete identified as. Right. Yeah. So if someone who identifies as a gay Christian doesn't understand regeneration, doesn't understand, and and, and, I, and that's why I mean here, we can't define ourselves that way. 
I, I recognize that people struggle with sin, and people can struggle long with sin. I mean, I, I've known people who have struggled, to just done battle royal with, you know, with sins, sins of the mind. And they, and they fight, and they fight, and they fight, and they fight. And the reason they fight is because I'm a man made new, and I shouldn't be thinking those things. And so I cannot be. It, it, is, it, is, it, is a, it is a conflict of terms to call myself a Christian pervert. There is no such thing. I may be a Christian who struggles with perversions, but it cannot be my defining quality. I'm not a Christian pervert. And for the same reason, then, I don't think we can ever talk about someone, so the, the, the idea of someone being a gay Christian, I think is a violation of what we see here in, in 1 Corinthians 6. Okay? I don't know. Does that, does that help? Does that, does that help us to understand that? Uh, and hopefully, you know, keeping the, this, you know, balancing here the idea that we have to remain sympathetic without being tolerant of sin, right? And uh, and hopefully we can balance those. There's things that are hard to balance sometimes, right? Uh, but we do need to balance them both. Sympathy, yes. Tolerance, no. Okay, and that's how we should treat all sins. Um, and there are no exceptional sins in that regard. Okay. Thoughts, questions, comments? <coughs> what, what you've been talking about is, is really, um, it's basic to the concept of loving the person mm-hmm. and hating sin, whether it's our own or theirs. We're called to hate sin, but we are called to love people. Yeah, and yeah, we are, we are called to be sympathetic and loving towards people without tolerating. So, somehow... Somehow our society has come to the idea that in order to be loving, you have to be accepting. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's, those things don't necessarily go together. Those, those two verbs, you know, they don't always go together. It's, you know, it, you try, try, and, try and convince someone out on the street that that's true and you're going to have trouble. But I, I think we have to, we have to, we have to go there. So to not accept one is not hating. Right, and I, I mean that that term is thrown around so much these days. Right, you just hate. Well, well no. Yeah, I mean, the whole society says, "Love me, love my sin." Right, you have to love what I'm doing. Right, to convince me to because I am my sin. Yeah, and I can't be otherwise. Uh, and that's that's not what the scriptures allow us to do. It's our unwillingness to part with it. Yeah. Very good. Okay, we'll cut it off here. Our time's up, and uh, we'll pick up here uh, next time.